The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. Well, this morning we are returning to the book of Mark, and it was the Sunday before Christmas Eve, actually two Sundays before Christmas Eve, it'd be December 10th that we were last in the book of Mark. That was approximately four weeks ago now. 28 days have passed since then, and, and if you were here on that Sunday, I wonder what you remember, what we remember from that Sunday. If you recall, we focused on Jesus' interpretation of the parable of the sower, and I wonder what struck out to you from that passage. I wonder how the truth that that passage presents to us, how it impacted your thinking and your living, perhaps, over the past 28 days. Several of you commented to me of how it shaped your thinking and your living over the course of the past 28 days. You know, several, of you, several of you commented that it really was impactful to think about that subject. But it also may be true that some of you were here on that Sunday but have not given a second thought to that sermon at all. The consideration of it has completely left your mind when you left that service on that day. The message may have not impacted you in the slightest degree. For some of you, perhaps, Jesus' parable was really earth-shattering or provocative it, in a sense that it provoked your thoughts, thoughts about your own life, people you have known, professing Christians who are no longer walking with the Lord today, people who maybe started out strong in the Christian life but have since drifted on to other things. And I hope that for most of you, God used the truth from that passage to stir your heart, to transform your thinking, to renew your mind. But for others, though, who are here on that day, perhaps you're even struggling to recall what that passage or that parable and that sermon was about. I mean, it was four weeks ago, after all. You know, some of you may be even now trying to remind yourself of that parable. What was that about? Perhaps internally you're feeling a bit of shame that nothing is coming to mind and you're sort of goading yourself or cursing your own memory. Why can't I remember these things? I've certainly been there. But if, if you were in attendance four weeks ago, I hope that you recall something from that parable, from the parable of the sower and Jesus' interpretation of it. Uh, I hope that there was something particularly noteworthy that impacted you and stuck with you and that it wasn't just in one ear and out the other. But maybe that was the case for you. Maybe it was in one ear and out the other. And maybe that's a typical Sunday morning experience for you. You hear the sermon, you maybe even track with the sermon for a while, you might even track with the entire message, but really that's the end of it. That's all of it. A day later and even hour later, the, the passage that was preached, the divine truth that was taken up and examined, has now managed to evade you. It's kind of gone from your mind. It's not changed your life. It's not impacted your way of living at all. It did not provoke any re-examining of pre-commitments that you had in your mind for years. It just is gone. And we say, well, why is that? Why are some people greatly stirred through the preaching of God's word and, and others are just simply unaffected? Some people are gripped by the truth and others seem to be just in a daze, thinking about other things. Well, I suppose there are, are many things that 
could affect our intake or our uptake of the truth of God's word from our Sunday morning gatherings. It, it might be your natural ability to remember, but I think it's more than that. It might be that you just didn't sleep well the night before, so you're tired and you're, you're dozing off. That certainly happens. It might be that you're weighed down with any number of burdens from things happening outside of the service, things in life that have distracted you. It might be that it's quite possible that whoever preached that day, but mainly that's me, it might not, I might not have just been that clear. I can confess and acknowledge that. And maybe I was just unclear in my presentation of that passage. And rather than exposing the truth of the passage, maybe I, ob I, I obscured it for you. As is commonly said, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. So that's certainly possible. Or it could be a result of some sin in your life. I mean, imagine, for example, you had an argument with your wife before you entered the service here as you drove here in your car, and maybe the thought of what you said and how it came out was wrong, and you're convicted already coming in here, and you're thinking the whole time about how you should go and seek repentance and ask for forgiveness. So the list really goes on and on. There are many things that could distract one from a sermon. This is true. But it seems that there are some people who are perpetually distracted and who in turn become perpetually stagnant in their Christian lives, perpetually unaffected by the truth of God's word, while others are constantly being benefited greatly, constantly equipped in the truth and enlivened, constantly just stirred in their affections for the Lord and his word. And I ask, well, why is that? Why the difference? Well, of all the reasons that we could come up with, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus gives us an inspired reason why some people find no benefit in the Word of God. Find no benefit in it. And particularly, we find here why some people were unaffected by the parable of the sower. And in light of this reason, Jesus then issues a command. Or perhaps we might say a warning. And so that's really our focus this morning as we come to Mark chapter 4, in this little passage in verses 21 through 25. Now, this section is directly connected with everything that's come before in Mark chapter 4. So we do well to briefly walk back through Mark chapter 4 and everything that we've covered thus far, just to review it in our minds. So if you would, please open up your Bible with me to Mark chapter 4. And begin in verse 1 and follow along with me in your own copy of God's Word and see what God has revealed for us. So look again at Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, of course, began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and, 
and produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the parable of the sower, of course. That's what we call this. And if this is all we had, what we just read, we would be very well likely confused about what it meant, what the intended meaning Jesus wanted us to have. Thankfully for us, Jesus explains the parable in detail in a few verses. But remember, for the vast majority of the crowd who are hearing Jesus teach on that day, that was all they got. It was just the parable. They received no explanation of it, and Jesus would not and did not interpret it for them. We see this in verses 10 through 12. And as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven." Note the dichotomy here, the dichotomy of truth. To those who were interested, to those who wanted more information and who were willing to come and ask questions to Jesus, Jesus gave to them the mystery or the secret of the kingdom of God. But to those who listened in a casual way, who were unwilling to engage further, and who in all likelihood were deeply confused by the parable, to them no explanation would be given. And verse 12 informs us that that was Jesus' direct intention to veil the truth from them. So responding to their own hard-heartedness and their own dullness of hearing, Jesus did not want them to understand. Otherwise, shockingly, they might return and be forgiven. So to these Galileans who had witnessed Jesus' healing power again and again, and they had witnessed Jesus' authority over the, demean, the demons, but who were really unwilling to listen or to heed the message that Jesus was giving them, Jesus increasingly veiled the truth from them. He gave them truth in what we might call a, a parabolic fashion. But even that would soon fade into their distant memories. But to his disciples, to those who were willing to engage and listen, who had open hearts and ears, to them, Jesus would unlock the mystery of the kingdom of God. And he does so then in verses 13 through 20, in this most critical of Jesus' parables. Look with me at verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The parable of the sower which Jesus is about to explain, teaches us something about the kingdom of God, which will then shed light on all the other parables, especially the ones that we find later in this very chapter. And now look at the explanation beginning in verse 14. Jesus says, The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, 
But the worries of the world and deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom the seed was sown on good soil and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now the key here, the key truth to know and understand about this parable is of these four types of responses to the word, the truth of the gospel message, of these four responses that Jesus presents, the key is this. There's only one that represents a true Christian. In this parable, the hard-packed soil that does not receive the seed and the seed that is carried away by Satan's devices represents those who just flat out reject the gospel when it's preached to them. That response represents those who make no claim to be Christians. They're simply not Christians. No one mistakes them for being a Christian. To them, the gospel is foolishness, and they reject it. That's the first type of response to the gospel. The second soil and the third soil represent those who initially show some signs of life but it's all external, it's all temporary. The rocky rocky soil represents those who make a shallow profession of faith. They appear to be Christians so long as life is easy for them. But when following Christ becomes costly, they ditch their Christianity. They might do so expressly with a clear defection from the faith. They might They they might continue, or or they might continue to think they're a Christian when in fact uh, they're not. When they might think they're a Christian until maybe a difficult situation arises in their life, and then they just choose to do what pleases them rather than choosing to follow the Lord. They don't take up their cross and follow the Lord. Instead, they just do what their selfish desires want them to do. The third soil, the weed-infested soil, also represents someone who hears the gospel and they initially accept it. But in time, the text says, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for others' things enter in and choke out the word. So the professing Christian gets subtly distracted by other things. Again, they... They eventually may come out and just quit pretending themselves. They may claim that they've now become an atheist or they're now an agnostic or, or whatever. Or they might continue in a, in a delusion, thinking that they are truly Christians. All the while, they're currently on a trajectory that will end up in the terrible result that Jesus warns about in Matthew chapter 7. When on the last day, Jesus sadly provides this rude awakening, this reality check when he tells them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So the rocky soil and the weed-infested soil represent what we might call false converts. They thought they were a Christian, but it wasn't real. They believed in Christ in one sense, but it turns out to be only a facade, a facade that might be realized in this life, or it might be realized on the last day when they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a false faith, a superficial faith, a faith that did not bear fruit. That's the key in this passage, in this parable. Of the four responses to the gospel, only one bore fruit. And that's the key. 
Only one is a lasting response, representing the person who heard the truth of the gospel and embraced it wholeheartedly into their life and were born again by the Spirit of God. But a stock of grain that bears no fruit at all, not even one kernel of grain, is altogether worthless to the farmer. That's the key. This is the truth of the mystery of the kingdom of God that Jesus wants us to know. People respond to the gospel in in different ways, but only those who respond with fruit are the true born-again believers. This is why Jesus can say, you will know them by their fruit. Every other non-fruit-bearing response represents an unbeliever, a person who's not headed for an eternity in heaven, a, a person who's still dead in their sins. Understanding this parable in this way is absolutely critical for the Christian life. So if you're troubled by what I'm saying now, perhaps you were not here on Sunday, December 10th, please go back and listen to that sermon. Because in that sermon, my whole goal in that passage was to expose you to the overwhelming biblical evidence that there's only one response that represents a true Christian in the parable of the sower. And I would say you for yourself must own that truth. You must be thoroughly convinced in your own mind. Because let me tell you, what I'm preaching to you here today is not the majority position. In fact, it's the minority position in evangelicalism. I mean, after my sermon on... After my sermon on Sunday, December 10th, one of you told me that they had probably listened to a dozen sermons in this town on the parable of the sower. And in the vast majority of those sermons, the other view was presented. The view that says, well, the rocky soil and the weed-infested soil, they represent Christians, just unhealthy Christians, but Christians nonetheless. And beloved, that's just not true. That's just not true to the passage. And this is such an important truth that we can't afford to get it wrong. And all of this context sets up for what Jesus begins to say next in verse 21. It's important to note that verses 21 through 25 are not an isolated, standalone passage. They come to us in the context of everything we've just seen in Mark chapter 4. So follow along with me as we come to our text today, verses 21 through 25. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? It is not brought to be put, is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. Whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. This is a rather unique passage, a unique set of verses. Uh, Some have called this the parable of the lamp. Perhaps that's the header your Bible provides. But the passage in its entirety is not exactly about a lamp. And nor would I say the word parable describes it well, although I suppose one could use the word parable to define it. What it really is is a collection of four sayings, four different sayings, four proverbial pithy statements, stock statements, statements that Jesus often used in different settings and in different applications. In fact, 
All of these four proverbial statements can be found in other contexts in the Gospel of Matthew and in Luke. For example, the statement about the lamp in verse 21 can be found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 15 in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in that well-known passage where Jesus says of his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And then he adds, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lamp stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So that is nearly the exact saying that we find here in Mark 4, verse 21. And the saying also can be found in a third completely different context in Luke 11, verse 33. So apparently, this was a saying that Jesus would use and employ for the purpose of producing a different application. And the same is true of the other three sayings that we find here. I mean, for example, look at verse 22. That saying found there in verse 22 can be found in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, and Luke 12, verse 2. The third saying can be, that's found in verse 24 can be found in Matthew 7, 2, and also in Luke 6. And the fourth and final saying is found three times elsewhere. Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 25, and Luke chapter 19. So what we have here in Mark 4 is a paragraph of sayings all skillfully compiled together to teach a complex lesson. You see, it's a, it's a really a unique passage. The lesson that is taught is one that relates to how we respond to the truth how we respond to the truth of God's word. I want you to see just a little bit more about the structure of this passage. In the original language, verse 21 and verse 24 begin with the exact same words. My Bible does not make that really clear, but in the original language, it's the same exact three Greek words that's translated meaning, and he was saying to them. They're exact copies. And this is important because it divides this passage into two, two parts. So what you have is a total of four sayings, but they're broken up into two sets, two sets of two. In the very middle of those sets of sayings, we find two commands. And in those commands, we're found what we're supposed to do with this passage. And they give us the sort of takeaway message. So that's how we're going to come at this passage this morning. We'll consider first the, the first couplet of sayings and its associated command. We'll call that part one. And then part two is the second couplet of sayings with its associated command. So part one consists of verses 21 through 23. Part two, verses 24 through 25. So part one, look with me again at verse 21 in your Bible. Look at it. And he was saying to them, that's the same group of disciples that was identified back in verse 10. Disciples and some others who were interested, they came to him. That's the same group. And he says this to him, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put, un, put on a lampstand? So in this verse here, there's two questions. The first implies a negative response. No one brings a lamp into a room only to set it under a basket. In Jesus' day, the lamp would have been an oil-burning lamp, a small one that could have been easily put under a basket. The basket referenced here is a, a simple woven vessel that would have contained about two gallons worth of dry material. That was the particular basket here referenced. And if you put a burning lamp under a basket, uh, you'd have to, one of two things could occur. Well, it, would, it would, could go out, it could be extinguished, or 
your basket might catch on fire. And both of those outcomes would be less than ideal. No one would do that, right? And nor would one place a lamp under a bed. That would additionally block the spread of light that a lamp was intended to create, and it could potentially catch the bed on fire. So the goal of the lamp is to illuminate a room. So rather, the logical use of a lamp is to put it on a lampstand so that it would broadcast light around the room. Now, the lampstand in those days would have either hung from the ceiling or been attached to a prominent wall high up, or it would have stood on a standing stand of some kind. But the goal, again, of the lampstand was to then broadcast that light around the room. The goal of the lamp was to give light. Therefore, logically, one would want to maximize the light from the lamp, not put it under a basket. And then Jesus launches into the next saying. Look at verse 22. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. Note the little word for, beginning in verse 2. This is a, verse 22 is, is in part an explanation of verse 21. It, it develops the idea further, but it also explains it. Jesus says, for nothing is hidden except to be revealed. I mean, just for a moment, consider why you might hide something. If you had something to hide, why are you hiding it? What is the purpose behind hiding an object? And we're just, of course, coming off of the Christmas season. And I don't know about your house, but in, in my house around Christmas time, there's a lot of hiding of gifts. We hide them before we have an opportunity to wrap them, of course. Or to not create undue premature excitement, we wrap them, but then hide them again so the kids still don't see them. And we wait until late on Christmas Eve and after the kids are long asleep, then we place the wrapped gifts under the tree. And then when the kids wake up on Christmas morning, usually all too early, then to their excitement, they see these new bright wrapped gifts under the tree. So what was hidden was only hidden for a time. We hid the gifts for the sake of revealing them later. So the purpose of hiding something is so that it can be revealed in its proper time. That's Jesus' point in verse 22. Look at it again. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. So here is the exact same truth stated twice in two different ways. Technically, we might call verse 22 an example of synonymous parallelism, all in this one verse. For nothing is hidden but to be revealed, and what is now secret will be made known. Teaching similar thing. So the key question then becomes, in part one, in this complex of sayings, the key question is, what is the thing hidden? What is the secret thing that will be revealed? That's the key question. And to answer that question, of course, we must be guided by the context of the passage. And what should naturally and what that should naturally drive us to and what came before is verses 11 and 12 and what we've already seen. Well, why? Look at it with me. Look at those verses again. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery or the secret of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables so that while seeing they may see and not perceive and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. In verse 11, that word mystery, I think, is better translated as secret. It is the secret of the kingdom of God. And it was the secret of the kingdom of God that Jesus revealed to his disciples in part by teaching them and explaining to them the parable of the sower. 
And it was the secret of the kingdom of God that Jesus intentionally withheld or hid from the crowds. Therefore, it's the secret of the kingdom of God that Jesus has in mind in verses 21 and 22. It's the secret of the kingdom of God that is meant to be broadcast like, a, like light coming from a lamp. It's the secret of the kingdom of God that was hidden for a temporary time or season only to be revealed later. Jesus limited the truth of the kingdom of God from the crowds, but it would not always be that way. Soon enough, the crowds would have the truth disclosed to them, broadly preached to them, we might say. They would have their opportunity to hear the truth. We say, well, how is that? When when the crowds begin to receive the truth that was hidden from them? Well, I think we find a hint to this answer later in Mark. Mark chapter 9. If you would, just flip a couple pages and go over there with me. Mark chapter 9. And look at verse 9. This is right after the transfiguration when Jesus disclosed his divine glory to Peter, James, and John on the mountaintop. And they're coming down. We'll jump right into verse 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anything what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So the Son of Man, that's Jesus. After Jesus rose from the dead, then they were free to tell people. After the Son of Man rose from the dead and after he ascended to the Father, the, the apostles would really come to life in their missionary proclamation of the gospel. They would go everywhere preaching the truths of the kingdom of God, explaining openly to anyone who would listen all that Jesus taught them. They would go out everywhere preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. So soon enough, the truth of the kingdom would be heralded by the spirit-indwelt early church as is recorded in the book of Acts. So turning back to Mark chapter 4, this is what we see here. This is what's been revealed for a season, but will soon enough be shared broadly. And Jesus adds then verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That's a command. Let him hear. Be careful to hear. In other words, take note of this truth. Soon enough, the mystery of the kingdom of God, which Jesus gives in parables, would be broadly spoken of would be widely preached. The secret of the kingdom would soon enough be disclosed to the masses. This is part one, part one of this complex of sayings. And I'd say it has an encouraging outlook, part one does. It's, it's optimistic. Yes, Jesus has shielded the truth from the crowds who were dull of hearing, but soon enough the gospel would be given to them. It would, it would be heralded to the roof from the rooftops if they were just willing to listen to it. The early church would soon come alive in gospel proclamation. The truth of the kingdom would be broadcast broadly. So this then brings us to the second part of Jesus' complex of sayings. We call it part two. And in the second couplet of sayings, look with me at verses 24 and 25. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has to him, more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. In verse 24, the word measure is found three times in the original language, in the verb form and in the noun form. It kind of would go like this. In what measure you measure, 
it will be measured to you. In what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. Again, we find this saying employed in Matthew chapter 7 too. It's nearly the exact same. And there, in, it's in a context of how we treat others, how, how we might judge them, the text says. Jesus says there, For in the way you judge, it will be judged to you, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. But here in Mark 4, verse 24, it's referring to something different. Somehow it relates to hearing. Hearing, that's the opening statement of verse 24. Take care what you hear, or, or be, beware how you listen. Once again, the second saying adds clarity to the first. Look at verse 25 then. For, note that word, for whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. So the one who already has, more will be given to him. And the one who does not have, even the small amount that he already possesses, soon will be taken from him. You say, well, what does this all mean? Well, considering both of these sayings and how they go together, and noting that they're in the context of hearing, it means that the amount of, tension, the, the amount of attention that one gives to Jesus' teaching affects how they will be profited from it. The more one gives himself to understand Jesus' teaching, the more the meaning will become clear. So there's a reward for diligent effort. The one who truly gives himself to know the truth, God will bless him with understanding the truth and an understanding in abundance. God blesses generously in this passage, even beyond what would be commiserate for the effort put in. Note this in verse 24 at the end. And more will be given you besides. It's a generous offering. Verse 25 adds, whoever has to him more shall be given. So God is generous to those who invest themselves in knowing the truth. God is the one doing the giving here. And he's also the one doing the removing in verse 25. Whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. So the person who has some exposure to the truth, but is entirely passive and makes no effort to understand that truth and makes no effort to apply the truth into their life or to appropriate it into how they live, God will eventually take that truth from them. So a man who does not use his ability to understand the truth blunts his own ability to understand truth in the future. Those who do not engage their spiritual muscles, the muscles that they do have, will soon find that those muscles have atrophied entirely. In other words, if the only investment you make in your spiritual life is Sunday morning, and even then, if you're partly checked out and thinking about other things, if that's you, then don't expect to grow. Don't expect to grow in godly behavior, and don't expect to expand your theological horizons and understanding the Bible and how it fits together. Rather, expect to become increasingly spiritually ignorant. You see, those who do not hold fast to the teachings of Christ, who do not press in to have a firm grasp of sound doctrine, will soon lose their grip on the truth altogether. I think this is a passage that applies equally to believers and unbelievers alike. In part, this is an explanation of why the second and third soils go on to bear no fruit. They had some truth, it was given to them, but they were 
distracted by other things. And eventually, what little they had was taken away from them. This was also true of the, loud, the large crowds who came to hear Jesus and who went home confused. Uh, they were given some truth, but they didn't press in. They didn't follow up seeking to know more. And so even what they had received, the truth they had received, as veiled as it was, would definitely result in no benefit for them. But this principle also holds true for believers. Paul told Timothy, Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline yourself. Make yourself work hard at the sake of growing in Christ. That's 1 Timothy 4.8. And therefore, some Christians are serious about growing in the Lord, while other Christians seem rather to be uninterested. And by the measure they use, it will be measured to them. So little investment, little growth. Uh, great investment, great growth. And this explains why some Christians who after only perhaps one year of being saved are more sanctified and know more of the truth and understand the Bible better than other Christians who've been Christians for several decades. They never gave themselves to knowing the truth, to pressing in, to studying. They never work out their salvation with fear and trembling. They never concern themselves with growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And according to this passage, and this is not a result necessarily of your ability to remember, it's a result of your orientation to the truth of God's word. It's a result of how you approach the text, how you deal with it, how you respond to it, what you do with it. So if part one in this complex of saying was optimistic, what Jesus now hid would be soon enough revealed through the preaching of the apostolic church, Part two, we might say, is more realistic. Realistic in that for many, many who would hear the preaching of the early church, and many today who hear the preaching of the gospel, who hear the secret of the kingdom of God, for them it will result in no benefit. They practice a careless, casual kind of hearing that will ultimately only become a detriment to them. They will have what they had taken away. Therefore, Jesus says, beware what you hear. Now, Luke 8, verse 18 says it, take care how you listen. Take care how you listen to the truth. If anyone has ears, let him hear. So be careful how you respond to the truth. That's the takeaway from this passage. Be careful how you listen to the word of God, how you approach it. As I've said before, exposure to the truth of God's word is a dangerous thing. You must do something with it. James would put it this way, be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer. In James chapter 1, James writes, prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers only who delude themselves. For anyone who's a hearer of the word and not a doer is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror and for once he looks, he forgets and goes away unchanged. But the one who intently looks at the perfect law, the law of liberty, that's God's word, who looks intently at the word and abides by it, and not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. It's the man who looks intently upon the word of God and is changed by it, submits his life to it. That's what this passage is teaching. That's what Jesus is teaching here. We find a similar truth in the fifth chapter of the book of Hebrews. 
In verse 11, the author tells them that they have become dull of hearing. That's how he responds to these Christians. You become dull of hearing. He explains, for though at this time you ought to be teaching, you ought to be teachers teaching other people. You've heard so much truth that you should be teaching by now, but you have again need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is accustomed to the is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, an infant in the faith. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have had their senses trained to discern good and evil. And this explains many Christians. They're just perpetual babes in the faith because they refuse to give themselves to understanding the truth. They do not practice, they do not by practice train their senses. But instead, by lack of practice and lack of meditation upon the truth, and really a lack of careful application of the truth into their life, they really have no ability to discern good and evil. And for some, this is even a sign of false faith. Again, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. And so in God's providence, I think this is really quite the passage to come to on the first Lord's Day in the calendar year. It reminds us of how we ought to begin the new year. And I would say that is, be careful how you hear. Beware how you hear. Be careful how you approach God's word. And this, would, I would say, this should have several implications for our life. This should affect our desire to be in God's word on our own, our desire to read the word of God, to press into it, to know it. And may this new year that characterize our lives, that we press in as individuals to study God's word, press in as families to practice family worship, to bring the truth of God's word into our home. It should also impact, impact the way we memorize scripture. We should be a people who memorize what God has given us in his word. It's a, it's a regular spiritual discipline we can cultivate in our lives. It also should, means that we should thoughtfully engage in Sunday morning, Sunday school, the teaching of the word, preaching, all of it. We should, we should perhaps study the passage involved. I want to get the most out of this passage that I can. I want to take notes. I want this to stick with me. I want to be an active listener. I want to be a Berean. I want to know if I want to test everything he's saying. I want to challenge it with the word of God. I want to be an active listener. This also means that we should be engaging in theological thought. I'd say by reading theological books. Read books that make you think, that challenge your assumptions, that, that, that cause you to wrestle with the truth of God's word. Read books that produce sound doctrine. And I'd say finally, this should affect the way we practice discipleship in evangelism. We want to be people who take the word in and then give it away to others constantly dispensing the word of God to people in our lives, unbelievers and believers alike, training them up in the truth. I think this is the type of response to the word of God that we'll have. And if we do this, if we invest ourselves in how we hear, the Lord says he'll bless it and he'll give us more. He'll generously grow you in the truth, but you will have to invest yourself in the truth of God's word. You cannot be a passive hearer of God's word. So let's pray towards that end this morning. Please bow with me.